this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. So, hello everyone. Today is uh, my April 16th, 2022. It's a new episode uh, that I'm hosting for the New Books Network. And today I have Michael Thurston as the guest, and he is the editor of a new Norton critical edition of a very nice novel, The Sun Also Rises. So I'm going to be talking with Michael about the book and how he... Uh, edited the book, what the Norton Critical Editions are all about, and what he thinks about Hemingway. So we have a lot of interesting things to talk about today. So I noticed, by the way, that uh, the sun also rises must be hot these days, to use a good phrase, because um, Penguin's Everyman's Library is coming out, or just came out, I'm not sure which, uh, with the new edition of The Sun Also Rises. Uh, Is there any reason that all of a sudden The Sun Also Rises is a popular book? Uh, yeah, it's a really simple one. It uh, came out of copyright this year and is now wow. in the public domain. So anybody who's been looking for an opportunity to produce an edition is now able to do so a lot more easily. Oh, that explains it. Okay. Uh, it's an odd thing about uh, Hemingway. His books are not really that available as opposed to some other uh, famous writers. Uh, but you're giving the explanation right there. All right. So what I want to know, first of all, is how... Uh, Norton Critical Edition comes into being, because I have about half a dozen of them. They're all wonderful books. I consult them fairly often, and I'm always wondering, how is it that this particular writer had this particular book enter the pantheon, I I guess I'll call it that, of the Norton Critical Edition? So did you approach Norton, or did they approach you? And who who had the idea that it was time for this book to get the full treatment of the Norton Critical Edition? Um, It was a a kind of mutual approach. Uh, I had made clear that I was interested in editions of Hemingway as it became possible to publish them as they came into the public domain. And through a couple of conversations, um, the editor at Norton who runs the the Norton Critical Edition series and I agreed on The Sun Also Rises as the one that I could work on. And um, in, in the Hemingway case, sort of why a Norton Critical Edition of this book now? It's a combination of factors. I think this is something that Norton might have been interested in doing before now, but needed to wait until the the book was in the public domain in order to do it. Because this is a novel that is um, often taught in various sorts of courses, courses on American literature in general, courses on 20th century American lit, courses on the American novel, courses on modernism uh, that might focus on American, but might also include European and British modernism. Hemingway sits at that intersection where uh, he does a lot of good work for a variety of sorts of courses. And the Norton Critical Editions, they're not limited to classroom use, but they're especially useful for classroom use um, because they're heavily annotated they provide a lot of the, the information about references so that current undergraduates can get a sense of what's going on. And they include that sort of scholarly material that can be really helpful for students as they're looking to get into debates about a book or they're looking to write about a book. So there's some of the early reception, right? The early reviews and things like that. And then there's some more contemporary scholarship that enables students to think about the book in a couple of ways. So you're at Smith College, you're the Helen Means Professor of English at Smith College. You're also, I should mention, the Dean of the Faculty at Smith, and you're also the Provost. So you wear three different hats. So as a Professor of English, I take it that your specialty is American English. Yeah, yeah. American American literature. Modern American and British, yeah. 
Right. Okay. Um, when you took on the job to do this, what did you think was going to be the biggest challenge? Annotating it or presenting a, uh, I don't want to say unique, but a really representative sample of the critical reception of the book when it was first published and then the reception that it's been getting the last few decades. Uh, can I have three biggest challenges? Oh, by all means. Okay, so I think the three biggest challenges were, um, first, there's just a, a wealth of great stuff about this novel. And so trying to select, and in any of the various conversations about this book, uh, there's an embarrassment of riches. So there's a lot of great stuff in Hemingway's letters and in other documents about um, the, the, the editing and the marketing of the book. Um, there's great early reception stuff. Um, there's a lot of interesting scholarship over the 100 years almost since the book was published. And so narrowing that down was a big challenge. Um, now, uh, how, familiar, yeah. how familiar when you started that process were you with the, the full range of the uh, critical reception? Did you have to go out and find things that you didn't know about before? Or did you have to just sit down and make a list of, oh, this is a good thing to include, or this isn't really relevant these days? How did you do that? That's a great question. I knew a lot. Um, this has for a long time been a favorite novel of mine. It's one I enjoy teaching. It's one that for years I went back to every summer and reread, got something new out of it every time. And in that series of encounters, I would read other stuff about the novel. Uh, I, had, I had written some scholarly stuff on Hemingway, so I knew the broader literature, the scholarly literature on Hemingway fairly well. Um, and so I was familiar with a lot of stuff, but I knew that there were gaps in what what I could bring, um, especially in more recent scholarship. And so it was kind of fun kind of identifying those gaps, reading around a lot to see how I could fill those in and then also casting a wide net. You know, the, I know a lot about uh, literature in the 20s and writers who were in Paris in the 20s and reviewers and critics who are responding to them. And so, as you say, I made a really long list to begin with, and then I had to kind of winnow that down. What are the things that would really help to frame up useful conversations about this novel, especially in the classroom? Well, I do want to talk about the various critical pieces you have in the uh, in the book, but maybe the better thing to do for the for the audience is to try to situate right now. Um, the sun also rises in the canon, in Hemingway's uh, canon. Mm -hmm. Where does it fit and how representative is the novel of his shelf of books? It sits at a really interesting transitional moment for Hemingway. Uh, in the early 20s, starting in 1923, Hemingway is publishing short pieces in little magazines. Publishes a series of short vignettes, um, six of them in April 1923 in a magazine called The Little Review, which is a very important magazine on the, the kind of avant-garde literary stage. Um, it was the magazine that a few years before had serialized James Joyce's Ulysses and had gotten into legal trouble in the United States for some episodes in Ulysses. Um, other famous modernist writers published in The Little Review. So that really um, that early publication was one that situated Hemingway in the up and coming avant garde, uh, a, a sort of almost second generation of the avant garde writers. You could trace back to the early teens who made up this this scene of literary modernism. He was publishing in magazines that were published in Paris as well. Uh, he co-edited uh, from time to time a magazine called the Transatlantic Review with a British novelist, Ford Maddox Ford. So he was really developing a reputation as this sort of modernist short story writer. Um, he was friends with the poet Ezra Pound. Uh, he was a, a friend of Gertrude Stein and uh, came to Stein's salon um, from time to time. Stein and Pound both wrote reminiscences of Hemingway. But he also always had his eye on being a mainstream literary success. He was never going to be content with publishing short stories in avant-garde magazines that had fairly low readerships or in avant-garde small presses where he also published in 1924. So by 1926, when The Sun Also Rises comes out, Hemingway had published two small books with these very small presses uh, in and around Paris, three stories and 10 poems with a press called Contact Editions, uh, and the lowercase in our time, which was just these short prose vignettes 
in a very small edition, 300 copies or so um, by a press called Three Mountains in Paris. And then in 1925, he published what we now think of as In Our Time. This is a collection of short stories interspersed with these short prose vignettes um, that we call interchapters. And that began to get him noticed by the bigger American publishers. He published In Our Time with a fairly mainstream American publisher okay. called Boney and Liverwright, um, run by a guy named Horace Liverwright. And he had come to the attention of Edmund Wilson. Wilson had written appreciatively of Hemingway, and there was a, a, a real opportunity for Hemingway to achieve much broader mainstream success with a novel. And it was really important for Hemingway just, to write a let me novel. Let just stop you there. Yeah. I mean, Edmund Wilson at this time is about the heaviest of the heavy hitters, isn't exactly. he? Exactly. Yeah. No. So Wilson is at the New Republic. Wilson is is um, already at this time a, a major arbiter of literary quality. So if you get recommended by Wilson, you're going to get a, a good readership. And this is happening to Hemingway in 1925. He needs a novel. A novel is how you really kind of make your bones on that literary scene. He's also friends with F. Scott Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald has scored really well with The Great Gatsby. And so Hemingway um, sits down and, and pretty quickly writes the first draft of The Sun Also Rises. Takes him about six weeks to write the first draft. And uh, does as Hemingway does, because revision is really the crucially important part of Hemingway's practice. Does a lot of work to turn it into the novel that we now have. That work is like on a line by line basis, but it's also deciding that there are whole chunks that he had written that were just not going to be suitable for, for the book. And I can talk about those in more detail at some point, if you like, um, and gets the book really into shape and publishes it with Charles Scribner's. And Scribner is a, a larger press. He's working with a really famous and influential editor, Maxwell Perkins at Scribner's. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the book is really published in a way that gets it the kind of attention that it deserves and is immediately reviewed by some other heavy hitters on the literary scene. And did Perkins do much with the manuscript? Because Perkins was fairly well known for having a, a pretty uh, active hand in revising the manuscripts that he was working on. Yeah. I think, isn't he the one who uh, who edited Thomas Wolfe? He is, yeah. And, yes. and so he needed an especially heavy hand with Wolfe. Um, Hemingway, I think, gave him a little less to do than Wolfe did in terms of cutting. Hemingway was pretty interested himself in cutting his work down um, to, to make it work through implication rather than explication in some ways, right? It doesn't go on long, long, long passages in the way that Thomas Wolfe does. There's a really interesting back and forth between Perkins and Hemingway. And Perkins isn't somebody who's really in there with the blue pencil doing a lot of reshaping Hemingway's sentences, but he's somebody who has to be attentive to where Hemingway is potentially straying outside of the bounds of what a publisher like Scribner could publish in mid-1920s America. So there, Hemingway gets a little off color in some places in the novel, and Perkins is pushing him on those things. So there's some language or the suggestion of language that Perkins has Hemingway dial back a little bit. Uh, there are some references to living writers that Perkins has Hemingway change. So he has to change a couple of names so that it, it won't be obvious whom he's referring to. There's a little anecdote in a famous scene, really great scene between uh, Jake Barnes, the main character, and his friend Bill Gorton. There's this really fantastic, funny back and forth, and there's a crack about Henry James. Uh, there's this apocryphal story about James having having been emasculated in a bicycle accident, and Perkins, right. Perkins right. requires Hemingway to tone that down a little bit uh, so that he won't be making it so obvious. So, so that's really sort of the editorial role that Perkins plays with Hemingway in this novel. Actually, when you think of it, they're at opposite poles, uh, Thomas Wolfe and Hemingway, when it comes to the prose uh, that they wrote. One was uh, flamboyant, florid, and the other is, I don't want to say minimalist, but fairly close to it. But that's what I was kind of trying to get at. How representative is the prose in this book, in this novel, with the prose of other novels that came afterwards? So this is a place where Hemingway achieves what what I think we can call his mature style. I mean, there, there's a lot of um, similarity between it and some of the best stories in in our time. But but he's leaving behind some things that had been characteristic of his earliest work. 
Um, in some of the interchapters and in our time, you'll find this almost Gertrude Stein style repetition of sounds and words that that moves from the narrative voice in those stories into moments of dialogue in this novel where it's kind of contained and it, it typically now is for humorous effect rather than being authorized by the narrative voice. It's something that Hemingway is done with and is leaving behind. And what you have instead is the, the style of narration in this novel, which is a little more carefully ironic. So Jake Barnes, for example, you know, he's been emasculated by a, a war wound. Uh, he's a, he was an aviator during the First World War. Uh, he suffered some sort of injury. We don't ever hear exactly what it was, but it makes him sexually incapable. And he sees himself in an armoire mirror one night in his Paris apartment. And he, he has this sort of rueful rumination on that. And the, the style of that, the narrative style of that, that has irony in it, but also has a certain sort of emotional authenticity in it. And there's a, it's close to a place where Jake says it's hard to be hard boiled in the night. Um, so you get the sense that this is somebody who really is capable of deep feeling. That's, that's a newer thing for Hemingway style and really becomes the dominant style for the next decade in Hemingway's fiction. It's been quite a while since I, uh, reread it. Um, so I reread it was last week, I guess it was, and I was struck by, it wasn't nearly as clipped a prose style as I expected. Um, in fact, there are parts that seem to be kind of garrulous almost. Mm -hmm. um, is that something that he continues in later books? The garrulousness or the clippedness? Well, I guess that balance between the two, because I was surprised that there are the, the not whole pages, but certainly sections of pages uh, that have that clipped, Hem the famous Hemingway uh, minimalist approach, the one that's uh, parodied all the time. Uh, you see that, but at the same time, you see him kind of taking a different approach altogether, sometimes in the conversations he has with folks, where it's not the uh, the, the minimalist uh, five-word sentence. It's something much more expanded. Um, and I'm trying to think of the later novels to, to try to get at whether this style changes much over the uh, remaining novels that he writes. What do you think? Yeah, I think it does. I think uh, there are a couple things going on here. One is that precisely because it's a style that has been parodied so much, we've come to believe the parody until we go back and, and read the stuff itself. And we forget that the parody is, is a parody and that there's more complication in the style itself. But I think, you know, what the parody really is based on is um, some of the stories. So you think of a story like The Killers where the prose, oh, yes, yes, the yes. prose really is kind of minimalist and, and clipped. Um, and then um, the, a novel like To Have and Have Not, where Hemingway is really pushing, I think, much farther than he does in The Sun Also Rises on how he how short sentences can be and um, you know, how clipped the, the dialogue and narration both can be. But then there's something like a later novel across the river and into the trees where um, you use the word garrulous. And I think that really is the best word there where Hemingway really sort of lets himself go. And the style is quite different from what you see in The Sun Also Rises. It's also probably worth saying it's not only the parody, I think, that makes us misremember Hemingway. It's his influence, which then gets refined and deepened in the work of somebody like uh, Raymond Carver or Ann Beatty, where you know they're they're going for a much more minimalist style than Hemingway's ever really was. Well, the reason I was thinking about this is that I was doing some stuff about uh, Joan Didion, and mm -hmm. she has a famous uh, recollection of of uh, copying out a Hemingway page or two just to help shape her prose style because she wanted it to be more clipped than it was, um, and that's what I really, as I said, didn't see in this book too much, mm -hmm. but. Uh, Raymond Carver, isn't he the one whose editor <laughs> chopped out half of what he, he turned in? <laughs> yeah, so that, that's the thing, right? When all of us were reading Carver in the 1980s, we didn't realize that you know, what we were really reading was Gordon Lish's version of Raymond that's right, Carver. Gordon Lish, that's right. Yeah. I was confusing him with Russ Hills in my head. Uh, that's a, I, it's almost a scandal that that happened. I mean, I don't know how Carver's reputation can survive the information that came out about the extent to which uh, his prose was chopped down by his editor. Um, I think there are two ways to think about that. One is, you know, this is very similar to the Perkins Wolf 
dynamic that we were just talking about, right? Wolf would hand over a suitcase full of pages and Perkins would shape that into Look Homeward Angel. Um, but Carver was also a, a participant, right? He was a, a collaborator here. So they were, he was taking his direction from Lish, but it wasn't being published over his protest. Mm -hmm. But the thing about Perkins though, is that he's chopping out whole sections of, of Wolf's work, but the sections were all the same. What Lish does is he transforms the prose style into mm -hmm. something much more compact, uh, yeah. much more effective, I guess you'd say. Uh, yeah, I think it's something of a scandal. I really do. Mm. Um, I was talking with someone who was an editor at The New Yorker, and I was really intrigued by this question of, to what extent can, a, can an author really say, this is my work, when an editor has a heavy hand? Um, so anyway, that's something for another day, I guess. But um, why is this, The Sun Also Rises, why is this, and I'm not disputing it. I'm just trying to have you uh, educate us. Why is this a modernist novel? Tell us what a modernist novel is and why this is one of them. That's a great question. And, and a modernist novel can look a whole bunch of different ways. So you might think of something like Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, where you've got totally incomprehensible passages narrated by um, members of the Compson family, and it's really kind of going through their heads, or Joyce's Ulysses, where you've got a similar kind of stream of consciousness narration, or Virginia Woolf novels, um, where the relationship between the the character and the world is mediated through the character's mind in these ways you have to kind of learn to read. And those are related to, but different from the sort of modernism that we see in Hemingway. I think the the primary way that we can see Hemingway as modernist is if we think about the impact of the First World War and of the you know the first two decades of the 20th century on on the way that people assumed the world had order. You come into the first decade of the 20th century, and there are already some some dramatic dislocations in the ways that people experience the world. Right, um, things are speeding up. Um, we're able to communicate in you know pretty instantaneous ways in, in ways that people hadn't been able to so that the relationship of people to space and time is changing and dislocating and then you have the first world war which just blows to hell everybody's idea that anything makes sense you know the, the spectacle of summer after summer of trench warfare in Europe nobody seems to know a way to make this end nobody seems to understand how everybody got drawn into this it's a war that makes no sense and keeps on making no sense is enormously destructive to people's understanding that the world has order and meaning and um, and significance and so you have a bunch of literary reactions to that. And Hemingway's is one. And I think that the specific mode of that kind of modernist doubt in Hemingway is irony. So irony is not new in fiction. Uh, you, you have it, you know, in the classic 19th century realist novel, but irony as like the dominant authoritative mode in a novel where everything that comes up is in some ways set at a distance from us so that we doubt it. That's the thing that really makes this a modernist novel. I can, I can give an example um, that I, I think is useful. Mm -hmm. um, Hemingway is somebody who's very interested in ritual. And ritual is a way that we either, depending on your point of view, connect with an order that exists in the world or we create an order to impose on the world. You think of... Um, the bullfight as this kind of meaning-making ritual. It's got roots in old cultures of sacrifice and, and a blood sacrifice that happens at specific times of the year that's to connect to the, the liturgical year in some ways. And bullfighting plays a central role in the novel. Bullfighting is very scripted and ritualistic. And Jake Barnes connects to bullfighting as his community, as his mode of finding or making some sort of meaning in the world. It's not just spectacle. It's something that he takes with a sort of ritual significance. But the way that the bullfight gets framed and treated in the novel sets us at a distance from that. 
and its ability to deliver on any implicit promise of ritual order and meaning and significance gets blown up by the way that the what happens in the narrative intersects with the bullfight. So we hear a lot about the decline of bullfighting. We hear a lot about its decadent phase. We hear a lot about how bullfighters who were once great are no longer great because they believed their own press and they're faking it and they're seeing what they can get away with with audiences. And then we have Pedro Romero, who is potentially like the, you know, the great authentic bullfighter. And this really is a confrontation with death that has the potential to be meaningful. And Jake recognizes all this. And then because Brett Ashley, the woman that Jake is in love with, but can't have a, a consummated relationship with, um, asks him to, he essentially betrays all of that that is so meaningful to him around bullfighting to deliver Romero to her because she wants him sexually. And this leads yep. to um, you know, everything kind of falling apart. So that, that's a way that the, the novel's modernism might be understood. Now, there, there has to be a connection between Jake's war wound and bullfighting with the threat all the time that the bullfighter is going to end up in the same position that Jake was mm -hmm. uh, left after the war. Uh, what is that connection? Why does, how important is that war wound to the novel, I guess is my question. Yeah, there's a superficial way of understanding it. Um, you know, Jake is emasculated and so can't um be with brett sexually and that produces all of the difficulties and uh, that marks him out in some ways and that that comes up for example in references to steers as opposed to bulls when they're watching the unloading of the bulls and the the use of the steers for the bulls jake would be a steer in some ways there and this is all i think kind of playing on the surface what's what's more important is that there is a connection between sexual potency and potency more generally Right, but between power and the ability to create order. And Jake has lost that. And um, Romero, as a bullfighter, is shown as really powerfully having that. And you, know, you could get kind of Freudian and you could think about the way that Romero is able to wield a sword and Jake has no quote unquote sword to wield. Mm -hmm. um, and Romero's sword is um, able to do the job in the ring, and Romero was able to do the job with Brett. And uh, at one level, that's just talking about sexual potency and impotence. At a deeper level, it's talking about the ability to have an uh, ordering effect on the world. Romero has that. Jake doesn't have that. We identify with Jake because his is the the head that we're in throughout the novel. His is the eyes that we're seeing everything through, um, and so we experience through the novel that that sense of not having that capacity, of trying to build that capacity, of our structure for it falling apart, and then of trying again. And of the the real tragedy, or maybe it's not even tragedy. Maybe it's just the pathetic situation of in this world where we are part of a lost generation, this post-war 1920s world, we don't have that power and nothing gives us a way to, to make this anything other than the wasteland that we move through. <clears throat> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, let's keep on talking about the characters because uh, they are... Uh, it's a group of uh, very... I won't say wonderful characters because I didn't like very many of them, but they're very interesting. Why is Mike so awful so often? <laughs> Mike is, um, as you say, interesting and not necessarily admirable. Um, so Brett Ashley is Jake's love interest. Uh, they've known each other for some time, but they, they also have these conversations about why they can't be together. Brett is never gonna be alone. She always needs to be with someone. Mike is who she has decided she's gonna be with. And so they're set to get married, right? 
and Mike travels um, along with Brett to Pamplona and then discovers that Brett has been messing around on him and that Robert Cohn, the one with whom she has had that affair, is there too. So I think most of Mike's nastiness is attributable to the fact that he's been cuckolded and that the one with whom he's, you know, his, his beloved has cuckolded him is there hanging around trying to steal her from him, continuing to try to steal her from him. At the same time, he has nothing to fear from Robert Cohn, nothing to fear because they had, he and Brett, Cohn and, and Brett had that one, uh, I guess, vacation dalliance, but nothing beyond that. So there's nothing to fear from him, but he won't let up. He won't let it go, as they say. I think he won't let it go because Cohn won't let it go. Uh, you know, his real anger at Cohn is that Cohn just keeps hanging around and doesn't get the message that he's not wanted. Um, and Mike says that essentially, you're not wanted here. Why do you keep hanging around? And so, but, but I think there's more to Mike. He's also, um, he's himself damaged by the war. He, um, he's a bankrupt, he's, he's somebody who has no, no self-control. Um, he, he can't control his spending. He can't control his drinking. And he yes, empathizes money, that, yeah. Money's a big issue in the uh, novel. Yeah. And you have a wonderful, I uh, forgot who wrote the uh, the uh, piece that you include in the critical section of the book, but there's a wonderful piece about money that you yeah. include. Um, <clears throat> why is Brett so enigmatic? I just couldn't quite get to the center of her her character. She's just flitting around from one guy to the next, from one interest to the next. But at the same time, she just seems to have this thing with our narrator, um, Jake, that is true and in many ways, it's a great relationship, except for that one problem. Yeah, Brett is somebody who uh, I think um, the answer is to all of these characters is gonna start with they're damaged. Um, Brett's damaged. Um, she lost one lover uh, to whom she was supposed to be married in the war. Uh, she had a terrible relationship with another who had come back from the war himself damaged, who had threatened to kill her and who was abusive to her. So um, she's got this unfillable hole uh, in her heart in some way um, that, that she needs always to be with someone. And it has to be complete, which for her means sexual. So there's a, a really painful conversation between Jake and Brett fairly early in the novel where she says it's so awful that we you know we can't be together and he says well we could be together and she says no no I would only betray you and she knows herself that um, there's something about this need that she has that is unsatisfiable and at the same time in the same way that Mike's not capable of controlling himself around spending or drinking Brett's not able to control herself around trying to satisfy this unsatisfiable desire. And so she'll um, be engaged to Mike, but she'll go off with Cone. Um, that doesn't do it. And uh, she falls for Romero and she you know, demands to have the opportunity to be with him sexually. We get the sense at the end that even though she's sort of chastened by all this, um, it's going to continue for her. I mean, she's she's got this insatiable need. Well, what's interesting in a way is that his reputation now, at least, I mean, it, maybe at that time it was different, but now, of course, it's uh, Hemingway, the tough guy, the mm -hmm. tough guy. And here he is in this novel writing with great sensitivity about subtle emotions. And I don't know that he gets enough credit for that. How do his biographers handle it? Do they give him the credit he deserves for that penetrating look at these various relationships? The serious readers of Hemingway do give him that credit. And I, I think you're absolutely right that he doesn't get the credit that he really should for this. And I, there are a couple of reasons for it. One is in some of his later work, it has to be said, he's not as um, sophisticated or as probing in his understanding. He's, he's not as, he gets a little, too involved in his own um, He-Man persona. This happens in some of the nonfiction that he starts writing a lot in the 30s, and it really happens as a kind of overcompensation for his own loss of, or losses or partial losses of potency starting you know, in the late 40s and the 50s. And um, that public persona is a lens 
through which everybody now comes to Hemingway and you have to unlearn some of that public persona to see some of that sensitivity that you're describing because it's there it really is. This is a novel in which he really does understand a lot about people, how people feel. Well, what is his reputation today in the literary world? <clears throat> I think it's somewhat diminished, unfortunately. And I think that, you know, some of the later fiction is possibly responsible for that. I think the misperception of him as this simply hypermasculine he-man sort of persona, he's much more complicated in his own sexuality than that public persona would suggest. And you get a sense of this from some of the posthumously published fiction. You get a sense of it from some of his letters. Um, he's much more interested in the, the complications of gender and relationships among genders. And when you, when you know all that and you go back and read those descriptions of Brett, you get a sense of why she's so enthralling for Jake, because she occupies this mm -hmm. space, you know, she's, she's a little masculine, right? She cuts her hair like a boy's. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and that's, that's something that Hemingway is really um, deeply and fundamentally interested in that the kind of androgynous area in sex and sexuality. Oh. And people, people forget that or don't know it. And so you have to kind of come to him with that in mind to see how interesting and complicated he can be. He's describing to, uh, to Jake how the bullfighter wanted her to let her hair grow out. And she's just repulsed by the idea that she would have long hair. Can you imagine me with so, long hair? I'd look a fright. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, yes. So for you, where does this book stand in the Hemingway canon? Uh, this is one of what I think are two fantastic novels by Hemingway. Um, this, this one and his next one, A Farewell to Arms, which was published in 1929. I think he really hits his highest achievement as novelist in these two. There's still great stuff in his career. Um, the great stuff is in some of the nonfiction and in short stories. He's a magnificent short story writer. And, um, so some of the, the short stories all the way through are fantastic, but the, these are the two novels that I think are the ones on which the rest of his career really is, is based. All right. So now that I've gotten you to identify your favorite novels, I want you to uh, tell me where he stands among novelists of the first half of the century. Well, when does he die? 62? So let's go to 62. Where does he stand with his contemporaries and those before him in the early part of the century? If we're talking about at his peak, right, in, in these two novels, then I think he's a, a real contender. He's up there in the top handful um, because he manages a compression of style that still enables tremendous emotional power and that has subtlety and sophistication in um, scenes and settings that enable him to, to sort of play with these themes around you know, the, the con our continuing desire for order and meaning in a world that doesn't really allow us to have it or find it. Um, well, it yeah, it strikes me that when you look at the other celebrated novelists of the, uh, of the first half of the century, Sinclair Lewis, Fitzgerald, Dreiser, Hemingway is, is a very penetrating, really a smart fellow. Mm -hmm. And he shows off that smartness in his books. Yeah, uh, he's he's a, a sort of younger generation than Lewis and Dreiser and uh, a far better novelist, I think, than either of them. He's he's right in there with Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald is another who, you know, you look at his his best couple of novels. I think he's one of the, you know, the top handful of modernist novelists. Um, All right, let's talk about the, the criticism. And sure. As I was reading it, I, there were parts of it that I just had a, a very hard time reading because I, the idea of animals being slaughtered just troubles me. It really does. Mm -hmm. I remember I took a course when I was getting my PhD in uh, 19th century American literature and some of the novels had the characters just um, killing dogs for sport is what they were doing. And I just, re mm -hmm. I rebelled against it. And then to see these, these poor um, bulls being slaughtered. It just, it really troubled me. Is he in danger of being canceled because of his approach to um, animals, do you think? It's powerful um, stuff. 
So I, I think what's going on there is, is a really fascinating thing because it's not the bullfight is not for sport. It really is much more strongly connected to ritual. Um, it's you can think of the way the mass, if you're a Catholic, is literally through the miracle of transubstantiation, you know, a a, a version of human sacrifice, right? Um, human only partially because you know, Christ is not only human, but is also divine. But that's a, a version of something that's got much older roots where there were actual sacrifices of animals. And the bullfight is connected to that tradition of the sacrifice of animals. It's taking sacrifice and turning it into this performance that is a kind of death-defying act of the matador. That's it. Well, that's for that's for a sophisticated audience, though. If you know that, if you are schooled in it, I can appreciate that perhaps. But someone like me who doesn't know that, I just see an animal being slaughtered, and I'm overreacting now. I, I acknowledge that. So let me no, change no. the subject and say: uh, so animals are not going to get him into trouble, but at the same time, he's really been uh, uh, helped because of his approach to uh, gender issues. He's got a lot of very good criticism uh, in the novel, or about the novel because of what he depicts in the novel about gender. I think that's right. Um, and, and by the way, I think you're you're more right than you're giving yourself credit for about the bullfight. The reality of the bullfight is it's a cruel spectacle and it really is a, a kind of awful thing. I think Hemingway. Have you seen one? Have you seen not one? In, no, not in I person, not. only in film. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, in Indian Hemingway's description in Death of the Afternoon, the book about bullfighting he publishes in the 30s, uh, it, it, it sounds like a cruel spectacle for all of the meaning that he finds in it. But you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, maybe going back to the 80s, um, critics like Mark Spilka and Robert Scholes and Nancy Cumley, and then more recently, someone like um, Deborah Modelmog have really brilliantly understood the complexity of gender in Hemingway. And and so I, I've taught a little course called Not Your Papa's Papa, um, <laughs> which is all about how Hemingway is not who you think he is in some ways, that um, not only biographically, because in some ways that's not what's most interesting, but, but in the fiction itself, you have oh. really complicated play with gender and gender identity and cross-gender and, and intra-gender desire. All right, now this is not a fair question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, because I'm also a lawyer and I ask unfair questions all the time. Uh, if Hemingway were with us and had a chance to read this criticism you're describing right now, this gender criticism, what would he say? He would, would he say, no, no, that's not what I intended, or yeah, you figured me out. What would it be? I think on the basis of both some of the posthumously published fiction, so stuff he wrote <clears throat> um, and letters, he would have to say, you're onto something. Even, even if he didn't come out and say, yeah, you got me, that's exactly it. He would have to say, there's, you, there's certainly something going on there. Um, there's a, a writer figure in um, Garden of Eden, which came out you know, 20 years or more after Hemingway's death, not something he published in his lifetime, but something that he wrote, who's, who bears a strong resemblance to Hemingway, who gets involved in some really interesting sexual play with his spouse around swapping gender roles and things like that. And that really aligns with some of the stuff that you see in letters, especially between Hemingway and uh, Mary Welsh, his last wife. And so um, I think he would have to, even if reluctantly, say, yeah, you're, you're onto something. <laughs> All right. Have, has, is there now a consensus as to why he killed himself? Uh, severe mental illness. He, he, struggled, he struggled with depression uh, exacerbated by alcoholism for at least the last decade of his life. And that was compounded by a series of physical injuries. So he was in two different plane crashes. Um, that left him with some, you know, serious injuries. He, he was himself wounded pretty severely in the legs um, in the First World War. Uh, terrible concussions starting in the 20s, right? And so you know, that kind of brain injury, uh, especially over time, especially complicated by underlying depression, which had run in the family in, in very serious ways. His father 
had committed suicide as well. Um, all of these and um, the, the real failures of the treatment of mental illness, just the, you know, where we were as a society and the understanding of the treatment of mental illness in the early 1960s just brought him to that place of crisis. He had been in and out of um, the Mayo Clinic where he had gone for treatment um, near the end of his life. And um, it was one of those things where um, yeah, he was off on his own at that moment. He, he was between experiences of treatment was at an especially low place and um, and came to that terrible moment. Had he tried to kill himself before or was that the first attempt? Uh, it's unclear whether there had been actual attempts before. There had certainly been some suicidal ideation before. All right. Um, what do you think of the biographies? Which one would you recommend to readers? <clears throat> oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, yeah, the, the classics by uh, Carlos Baker and Kenneth Lynn still hold up really well. Well, Kenneth um, Lynn is a very smart fellow. Very smart. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, they, and they both like and uh, Michael Reynolds. I mean, there, there's there's sort of a, a generation of Hemingway biographers who I think did a lot of really good research. And uh, so the, the fundamentals are all really there in those biographies. And then the revisionist work that's come by some later scholars who have really helped to open up our understanding of Hemingway's intimate life in ways that I think were just harder to do, both in terms of research and in terms of public understanding in the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s when those classic bios were written. All right, I want to ask you now about something that's more personal to you, which is you have a very smart, very, very smart 14 page introduction and you have a very fine prose style. Now, I don't know why it is, but sometimes people think that uh, a compliment of, oh, you have a nice prose style is somehow patronizing. And I don't mean that at all. I mean, you, I'm really, I admire your writing style. Thank you. Your ability to write. Now, tell me how you wrote that 14 page introduction. <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is a serious thing because you have a chance in the introduction to a major book. I mean, a Norton Critical Edition, it's a big deal. And you have a way to shape the way the audience, a generation, can look at a book. How did you go about doing it? Um, it's going to sound a little like the way I described Hemingway. Uh, I, I got to a 14-page introduction by writing a 40-page introduction. <laughs> And, and then had to really do some selection and compression to get at what are a couple of ways that I can offer to open up this novel for a largely student audience? And what are the ways that I think are most important? And uh, I just tried to, to narrow down to those and to say what I could as clearly as I could about those. And how many people did you uh, circulate it to or with to get their comments? Probably a dozen. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the academic thing, right? You you cultivate over the years this little group of people who you know you share work with, and they share their work with you, and you get some well, input and feedback. That happens a lot, but not all the time. There are some people who just do it themselves and mm -hmm. risk it. I guess I don't know, but uh, and who are the inner? Tell me about your inner circle. Are they from graduate school? Or are they from the Smith faculty? Where do they come from? Uh, they're mostly colleagues, either at Smith or people that I've known a couple of them since graduate school. Most that I've come to know since um, there's a little community of us here in the Pioneer Valley, um, some at Smith and some in other institutions. All right. Now, tell me how you got from Texas to Illinois for your education. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I. I grew up largely in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, North Texas State University was within an hour from my my house, and I could afford it. I could pay my but way. But you don't have there. an accent. How did that happen? Uh, I never wanted to develop that accent. <laughs> All right. So you go to school in Texas, and how did you get to Illinois? Um, Say you were state thirty-five. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the key way you get there. Um, there was a fantastic English department at the University of Illinois, and uh, there were a couple people there whose work I had read when I was an undergraduate, and I thought it would be cool to go there and work with them. Also, they had a right. famous library. Uh, that library is amazing. Yeah, 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 sure. And this is the last question. What are you working on now? I'm working on a couple of things now. Um, there's a, a 
somebody who should be better known than he is, a guy named F.O. Matheson. Um, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, taught at Harvard in the uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s, wrote one of the key books that really kind of put American literature on the map as an academic discipline, American Renaissance, came out in the mid-40s, um, committed suicide uh, right at the beginning of what we think of as the McCarthy era and got held up as a sort of martyr of McCarthyism. Um, so I'm working on a critical biography of Matheson. I think he's a really fascinating figure through whom we can understand a lot about certain elements of American culture from the 20s to 1950, 51. Well, I had heard a wonderful story about him. I don't know if it's true. Maybe you can tell me if it is about him when in, uh, I was in graduate school that he was sitting for his oral exams for his PhD and he was asked about a uh, somewhat obscure writer. He says, I, I, I can't think of his name right now, but I do have an article on him coming out in modern language quarterly next month or something like that. Oh, well, that that's, that's not one I've heard, but it sounds very like him. Yeah, <laughs> he was that far advanced. He's a really brilliant guy. Yeah. And but also you know, really troubled and interesting in, in ways not unlike some of the ways we've been talking about Hemingway. And what's the name of his famous book? American Renaissance. Yes, yes. And it was divided into four sections, if I recall, or something like that. Yeah, it really focuses on on Emerson, Thoreau, uh, Melville, and Hawthorne. Came out 1950, thereabouts? 44. 44. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I look uh, forward to, to reading that. I've always had an interest in him. Um, there were a bunch of people at the, uh, on the Harvard faculty around that time who were pretty interesting folks. All right, well, you've been a terrific guest. I was told earlier from one of your colleagues that you would be a terrific guest and you really delivered. So I'm just delighted we were able to talk for 50 odd minutes. Um, thank you very much for your time and looking forward to the new stuff coming out. And I hope, I hope a lot of people will download this because they'll learn a great deal about Hemingway and also about you and how you did your work, which I think is pretty impressive. Oh, well, Bill, thanks so much. This has been really fun. Thanks for having me.